teaching on finance the last two weeks. I spoke on finance last week. I began the week before. Um, can you put the volume back where it was, please? Um, it's a bit loud. You know, I'm finding it a bit loud. Thank you. When you start fiddling, I can pick it up. Can you just, whatever you did, however it was before, when the children were up, anyway, it wasn't you. It says, there's a spirit. I rebuke you. Go. Okay, fine. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so we're talking about finance, and uh, I don't want you to shut off because, um, you know, like I say, when we talk about money, Often people get very, very nervous. I believe that God is going to speak to you. On my teaching, we're talking about the disciple and his finance. This is part two of that. And specifically, I am going to deal with the financial responsibilities of a disciple. The financial responsibilities of a disciple. Let's stand. We're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we look into the word. Just lift up your two hands and pray. And ask the Lord to speak to you through his word. Not just about money, but about your life. About how he wants you to govern your life. So ask the Lord to speak to you. Open your heart. Talk to him. Tell him, Lord, speak to me today. And let my life be changed by your word. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray for your people. Thank you for the lives of your people represented here today. Father, I thank you for how you are dealing with us. And I pray you will help us to be transformed by the power of your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you, have, you may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 from verse 9 to 13. Luke chapter 16 from verse 9 to 13. Talking about the financial responsibilities of a disciple. How many of you do not have access to the notes? You don't have access to the notes. Um, you don't get the notes emailed to you. Can I see? Okay. Um, everybody who comes to our church should be able to have access to the notes. If you want it emailed to you, if you see Fola, Fola, could you just stand? The young man over there. Wonderful. And then give him your email address and uh, you will get uh, weekly updates of the notes that we, we, we send out from, the, um, from this pulpit. All right. Luke chapter 16 from verse 9 to 13. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by, right, or by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I want to encourage you to get the teachings of what I shared two weeks ago. Of course, what I actually shared as well, but specifically for what I'll be teaching, get the teachings of what I shared two weeks ago because it will help you to understand where we're coming from. Um, I'm not going to go over it because of time. Now, in these verses, there are several things I want you to notice about 
how God deals with us or speaks to us about money through these verses. The first thing I want you to see is that the disciple is encouraged to use money with eternity in mind. The disciple is encouraged to use money with eternity in mind. Verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. We are to view money as a tool of investment for our eternal future, as opposed to limiting its use to our temporal life or even this, the future in this life. We are to see and use money from God's perspective with eternity in mind. With eternity in mind. This is what the Lord is teaching. Now, he gives the parable of the unjust steward. Now, you have to read the whole of Luke 16 from verse 1 to 8 to get the background. Basically, this steward was a very mean steward. He was, he was a caretaker. He was a manager, actually, in today's language. He was a manager of his, his boss's affairs. But he was really mean. But then his boss got wind of it and said to him, you know what? I want you to give me accounts about what you've been up to because you can no longer be a steward of mine. Now, when this guy realized his situation, what he decided to do was to be smart by getting his master's debtors to get off lightly. So if they owed 100 pounds, he said pay 50. If they owed 1,000, he said pay 600. And by so doing, he courted their favor. And when his master saw that he was able to get back the money, his master commended him. And it's on the back of this that the Lord says that we are to use money in such a way that when money can no longer help us, it has secured for us a better future in the age to come. So as a disciple, we are encouraged to use money with eternity in mind. And I want to also emphasize this point. Our faith as Christians, as believers, is primarily with reference to the age to come. Now, I know that a lot of times the way we try and sell Christianity is that, you know, when you become a Christian, your life improves, your marriage gets better, things get better, your finances get better, you know, you get better. And it is true on many respects. But actually, for the early church... For a lot of them, and for most of the world now, the majority of Christians now, when they become Christians, things get worse for them. Some people lose their life. Some people lose their family. Some people lose their relationships, their networks, their friendships. Some people get excluded from places that they had access to because of their faith. But because in the West and Western-influenced Christianity, we are used to a very liberal environment, we, we, we have, in a way, perverted the gospel to make it very much centered around how you live your life here. But actually, the gospel, Paul says, if in this life we have hope in Christ alone, then we are of all men most miserable. So anyway, the first point I want you to see is, we encourage you to use money if you turn to mind. Second point is this. 
Our use of money demonstrates our faithfulness to God. Our use of money demonstrates our faithfulness to God. Verse 10 says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Money, from God's perspective, is considered as that which is least when it comes to its significance to him and to eternity. Now, in this life and in the system of this world, money is considered as that which is much. Everything by the system of this world is governed by finance. It's run by money. But in God, from God's perspective, money is considered as that which is least. So he says, if you are faithful in what is least, verse 10, you also be faithful in much. So he uses money to demonstrate our level of integrity and verity or trustworthiness. In other words, by our use of money, he's saying, we can determine the kind of character we possess. So, that's the second point. Third point, our use of money determines our access to the true riches. Our use of money determines our access to true riches as far as God is concerned. Now again, because many of us do not understand things from God's perspective, what God places value on often is not considered as much. So for instance, and I've heard it said by many honorable people, I'm not interested in pie in the sky referring to eternity. I want it now. And with that kind of paradigm, people live out their Christianity. But actually, how we use money will determine how we access true riches and the things that God considers as of real value. You see, if you are looking at things from the world's point of view, then what God considers as valuable will be not really that important to you. Our Lord said in this same Luke 16, he said to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Now, the reason why the Lord said this was because when he spoke about this parable, and when he said what he said, what I've just read earlier on, the Pharisees who justified themselves derided him. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They said, what stupidness, what kind of foolishness is this man talking about now? We're to use money with eternity in mind. We are to, um, true, true riches is not money. True riches is money. Go check my bank account. You will see true riches. And so they laughed at him. They mocked him. And he, in response to their mockery, said, yeah, you are the people who justifies yourself. In, fact, in other words, you think you're okay. But God knows your heart. You see, when money governs you, it gives you a false sense of security in your affairs. True riches. What are true riches? They are those resources and virtues which, when given to us, enables us to be truly wealthy in this life, but more importantly, in the age to 
come. They include our salvation, of course, our purpose in life. They include the virtues of the kingdom, like love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and kindness and faithfulness. They include the things that are within the kingdom of God that enables us to fulfill the mandate of God. The scripture tells us the kingdom of heaven is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. All kinds of wonderful riches that the Bible or God considers as riches which men don't even place value on. Let me give you an example of some of these riches called riches. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 from verses 3 to 7. I'm not sure if I gave this verse out, but I want to read it out to you. 1 Peter chapter 1 from verses 3 to 7. He says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold and that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now look how Peter the Apostle compares our faith to money or gold. He compares the value of our faith, which is eternal, to money, which is temporal, gold. Gold is the standard currency of all ages. And he compares the value of our faith to gold. And he says gold is nothing compared to our faith. Beloved, we have been given that which is most precious. When we understand our salvation in light of eternity, when we understand our, our purpose in life in light of eternity, we will place the proper value on it and not allow money to govern our hearts. Can you say amen? Fourth point out of this verse in, in, in Luke I want you to see is this. We are to see ourselves as stewards, not owners of the money at our disposal. We are to see ourselves as stewards, not owners of the money at our disposal. Verse 12 says this. If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now remember, he's talking about financial stewardship. And he calls our stewardship of finance as belonging to another man. You see, although as individuals, the money we have is our own, in one sense it's our own, according to Acts 5.4, as disciples of Jesus, we are to see all that we are and all that we have as belonging to him. So yes, the money that we have is ours, it's been given to us, and we're going to examine that um, a little bit later. But we must not see ourselves as owners. If we are disciples of Jesus, we must see ourselves as stewards or caretakers or managers 
of the money entrusted to us by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God? And you're not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he says, you don't even belong to yourself. Now, if your body and your spirit does not belong to you, how much more your money? Are you still here? Are you still here? And then the last point I want to see from these verses is this. Money forces us to choose to whom we owe our allegiance. It forces us. Whether directly or indirectly, you choose your allegiance. By how you administrate your finance, by how you live your life, you are demonstrating who you are really allied to. Because he says very clearly, no one can serve two masters. So right now, as you are listening to me and as I'm speaking, somebody is your master, somebody is my master, not by what I say, but by how I'm living, it is either God or it is mammon. And we established two weeks ago that mammon is the spirit that Satan uses to control and defile humanity through money. It's the spirit behind the financial system of this world that Satan uses to control and defile us in order to thwart the purposes of God for our lives. And beloved, we are serving God or mammon. A few, last year or a year before, I can't remember exactly when, the Spirit of God opened my eyes to a very prominent ministry. I'm not going to mention the name. And I was shocked because this was a ministry that I really liked. And I was listening to it and I was feeding off. And he showed me the spirit behind that ministry. And he showed me how that when people were given to that particular ministry, what was happening was, and this was the scary bit, by them giving to the ministry, it empowered the spirit behind that ministry to answer their prayers. But it wasn't God. I was shocked because I'd never even... Saw Heard of such a concept? Now you want to know what the ministry is? <laughs> I ain't telling you. He ain't, he, ain't, he ain't here anyway. Put it that way. <laughs> Mammon forces us to choose to whom we owe our allegiance. As I mentioned two weeks ago, money has a way of exposing our hearts. It has a way of exposing the heart of its owner. Money does not change us. It amplifies what is already in us. Just because you're poor doesn't mean that money has no power on you. Wait till you get money, then we'll see. Suddenly your walk changes. Before you used to walk like this now. When you come into the church, yes, you shake differently because you have money. Money has a way of amplifying what's already there. Ecclesiastes 10, 19, he says this, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers all things. Money answers all things. What does that mean? It means money reveals 
what's really there. Shows you who is who. You will be surprised what money will cause you to do if your heart is not yielded to God. You know, again, I shared this at Life Center last week, and I'll share it here. I don't know if I shared it here two weeks ago, but it's worth sharing. Imagine if I said to you as a church, you've heard me say this a few times, but it's worth saying again. I'm just giving you my notice. You know, I've served you for 21 years. This is 21 years, but I'm giving you notice because in three months' time, I'm, I've got a new job. I'm going to be pastoring another church. Um, but, you know, this church I'm pastoring, it's a lot more, more erasure than you lot. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's quite big. You know, you know they've, they've got their own building. They don't have to keep talking about finding a building. And they're going to pay me really well. I mean, my income right now is not even coming close. It's like four times the amount. And plus, by the way, I've, they've got, given me a five-bedroom mansion. The church is in this same borough, you know, but I'm just telling you. But I'm not your pastor anymore, I'm sorry. So the Lord has given me the breakthrough. I want you to rejoice with me. I want you to praise the Lord with me. I've got a fantastic breakthrough. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to make sure I do everything properly. So Olu and uh, Steve and these guys, they will be running the show. But me, I'm going to that church there. Three months notice. How many of you will be happy for me? I've got the breakthrough. Ah, how many of you will be happy for me? So none of you will be happy for me. How many of you will be really pleased that I've, I've really got the breakthrough? How many of you will be upset? Be honest. You, oh, so you're upset that I've got a breakthrough? How many of you will be confused? Okay, 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 fine. It's not in the bar of Greenwich. It's, uh, it's, it's actually in another country. I'm traveling. But it's still money. I'm going because the money is good. And I've got fees to pay. How many of you will be, will be happy for me? Now it's not in, the, in England. It's in another country. And I've got, I'm going because of the money. Not because it's another country. It's because of the money. How many of you will be happy? But you see, no offense, you do that all the time. Uh-huh, you see, there, I got you now, you see. You do that all the time without even blinking. The only reason why a lot of us take certain jobs is because of the money. It's because of the money. It ain't because you felt the Spirit of God is leading you there. It's because the money is better. So you can do it, but pastors cannot do it. Or how many of you will be happy if you knew anywhere I go, I tell them, before I come to your pulpit, make sure you guarantee me a thousand pounds for, after all, my services is, you know, I'm a bishop now, so a thousand. How many of you will be okay with that? Or you will not be okay with that either. But you are okay to charge people for your services. So what's happening there? It's called hypocrisy, isn't it? Oh, it's different. How is it different? We're all priests of God. How is it different? Money can govern your decisions about your future, but it can't govern the pastors. Something is wrong there. It either can, what, it's either, what, as the saying goes, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If, if, it's, if it's okay for you to do it, why isn't it okay for a pastor or a minister of God to do it? Aren't you also a minister of God? Are you still here? Money has a way of exposing our hearts. That's all I'm trying to say. Now, <laughs> turn to your neighbor and say he's talking to you. Yeah, I am. Now, tell somebody else he's talking to you. You see, 
I, I, I have monitored my heart about money. And I got a big shock when I monitored my heart. See, I have often thought, as for me, I'm not bothered by money. I don't care about money, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all out for God. Until you have to pay some school fees or until there's a bill facing you. Until you're under financial pressure. Until you don't know where the next penny is coming from. Then suddenly, it's a bit different. Suddenly, you find the morals and the values that you hold as dear. You're looking for ways to escape them. <laughs> okay, now. <laughs> are you still here? You look very sober right now. All right, so now. Next point I want to make is this. We have the freedom to decide how we use our money. This is a very important point. So, although in reality all of us are called to be stewards because the earth is the laws and the fullness thereof, God gives us the freedom to act as owners or stewards. In other words, you can choose to act as an owner of your money or you can choose to act as a steward of your money and both is acceptable to God. Acts chapter 5 verse 4. This is a story about Ananias and Sapphira. When the whole church, there was a move of the spirit, the early church, and uh, people were selling their land and bringing it, the money to the church. Oh, what an amazing thing. People were selling their property. So in today's language, people were selling their property. Say property. <laughs> See, you couldn't even say it. You just laughed. <laughs> is this where the service is going? Is this where the sermon is going? <laughs> where are we heading there? <laughs> <laughs> people were selling their property and bringing the money to church, all of it, you know, and laying it at the apostles' feet. <laughs> Size eight. <laughs> Can you imagine? So this couple decided to do the same. But man, after they sold the thing, they found out that hey, this is a lot of money. So we're not giving them all. We'll give them some. And they did just that. But the word of knowledge was moving very strong and the working of miracles was even stronger. So Peter, the apostle, when they brought the money, he said, is this all the money? Yeah. Is this how much the land was over? Yeah. Is this all the money? Yeah. And then he said, why has Satan filled your heart so that you decide to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men but to God. Whew. Therefore, right now. In fact, he did, when he said that, boom, the guy died. Can you imagine in a service, a breakthrough service, we're having it in a harvest gathering service, somebody brings their money, and as they get here, I say, hey, hey, hey. no, not me, Steve, he's, he's more of the prophetic one. <laughs> and he's more radical. Is this all the money? Because <laughs> he could say, you know, no, 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 no. You have not lied to God. Ah, even before I finish this, boom. I'll be like, oh my Lord, what are we? Oh, look, this man is killing the members now. <laughs> but that's what happened. But look at what Peter said. While it remained, verse 4, was it not your own? You see, our wealth has been entrusted to us to use it as we please. So it was within his power. He could have said, I pledged 
10,000, but I have changed my mind. There's nothing wrong with that. You can change your mind. If you make a pledge, you can change your mind. If you make a vow, you cannot. They're different. So that's why we encourage pledges. Because that's where a pledge. How many of you want to give 10,000? Yeah! How many of you are going to will try and give 10,000? Anybody will try. I will try. I myself will try and give 10,000 every month if I can. <laughs> Whether I can give you 10 or not, it's another thing. So I'm still trying. No harm in that. But that's a pledge. But you can then decide, you know what, I, I pledge to give 10,000, but I can't. I'm changing my mind. In fact, I can't even give you 10. I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. Here's a penny. And, uh, you know, hopefully God will do the rest. But a vow is different. A vow is where you say to God, God, if you do this, I'll do that. You better honor your vows. As for vow, no pastor can release you. When you say to God, God, if you do this for me, I will do that. You better honor the vow. Because if you don't, the very thing that God did for you, God will destroy it. Yeah, God himself will destroy it. Anyway, let's move on. We don't want to talk about that today. <laughs> Are you still here? So go and plead the blood with Jesus. Don't come and talk to me about any vow. Hmm. God does not want to own your money. He doesn't want to own your money. You own the money he's given to you. He wants to own your life. That's it. Because when he has your life, his life becomes your light, which governs how you use your money. John 1.4 says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. When Jesus' light Life becomes your life. It acts as light that governs your life. So God doesn't want your money. He wants your life so that his light through his life governs your life and governs how you use your money. So another thing I want to point out to you is God's heart concerning your financial prosperity. See, again, often... People are lied to about this. God wants you to prosper. Well, let's look at the scripture. 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. God's expectation on our lives as disciples is that our financial prosperity expresses our worship and balanced stewardship. It must be an expression of worship and stewardship, not prosperity in itself. God never simply wants his people to prosper. He wants them to prosper as their soul prospers. In other words, our prosperity in life, in our, with our natural life, must be within the confines of our spiritual development. Our spiritual development is what governs our natural development. If our soul is prospering, then it is his will for our natural life to prosper in tandem. But our financial prosperity must never dictate the pace of our spiritual life. Never. So if it is being dictated to, 
if it's dictating to our spiritual life, then there is something wrong with our worship. God's heart is that we prosper financially as our soul is prospering. Now, what is Satan's desire concerning our financial prosperity? It is that we prosper through compromise and idolatry. He does not mind, the enemy does not mind our financial prosperity as long as it causes us to compromise on our values or it becomes our primary focus. Satan will encourage your financial progress if it will cause you to compromise on your values or if it will replace God in your heart. Remember Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10. When the enemy took the Lord and tempted him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Many saints are involved in Satan worship, not by bowing to an idol, but by bowing to money in their hearts. Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and the glory that is in them, which is their wealth and their power and their strength. And he said, I'll give this to you if you bow down. And let me tell you what would have happened if the, the Lord did that. What would have happened is this. He would have had his ministry. He would have been very pro- successful. He would have been great. He would have been hailed as the savior of the world by the world. And all the religions up till today, they will be worshiping him. But Satan will be on the throne. Satan will be on the throne and it would have been over. He would have been totally received. Yeah. Because he showed him all the kingdoms. That is, he had the power to do it. Past, present, future. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So I'll give it to you. It's been given to me. And you know what? The enemy does this to every preacher. He does it to every believer. He does it to every disciple. Compromise on your values and I'll make you successful. Tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, and I'll expand your ministry. You know, you don't have to be so rigid about that form. Just add another zero and I'll give you the mortgage. After all, why buy a license? BBC, they are not doing a proper job. Just watch the television and uh, your life will be okay. (laughs) It doesn't matter how you compromise on your values as long as he gets you. And I tell you, in one way or another, all of us have bowed the knee to this idol. I know I have. I'm ashamed to say it, but I know I have. And when we recognize we've done it, we have to say, I repent. I have sinned. The sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry, according to Colossians 3, 5, is covetousness. You know what that is? It's when you want something that belongs to somebody else. You see someone's car. That's a really nice car. It's not yours. That's a really nice car. I want one. Why? Why? Drive the one you've got. Why do you want that car? You were happy until you saw it. All right, so quickly now. 
Help me with the time. I'm, I'm done. I'll continue this next week. We accept all of that to say this. The, the financial responsibility of disciples is within certain confines. Remember we said that one, whatever we do with our finance must be out of a place of divine ownership. In other words, God owns everything. Must be with an eternal perspective we touched on that already. Must be an expression of worship. God is number one priority. Must be done in faith. We have confidence and trust in God. And must be because of love. In other words, we love God and we, want, we love people. And that's how we are to administrate and give of our finances. So what is God's expectation in how we give? What are our responsibilities as disciples when it comes to finance? Number one. Our first priority and responsibility is to God and his will for our lives. It's to God and his will for our lives. Because in any area of our lives, we must always do it as an expression of worship. Whatever we're doing. Now, one of the things that I like about the Macedonian church, when Paul talks about giving, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 from verse 1 to 5, but verse 5, he talks about the grace of God upon the Macedonian church, how that as a very poor church, when they were being asked to give, they were so willing to give. Now, this is a New Testament church, and they were a very poor church. Again, contrary to what we might be used to hearing, the majority of the first century church was poor. They were poor. The majority of them were slaves. They were poor. There were pockets where they were rich, like the Laodicean church. They were very wealthy. And Jesus said, I want to vomit all of you out. You're just nasty. Can't stand you. He literally said, I can't stand you. They were very powerful. They were very rich. They were very successful. And they thought they were. But the majority of the churches were poor. Just by the way, it's a fact. Go check your Bible. It's a fact. But look at what it says about the Macedonian church, verse 5. Not only as we had hoped. They not only gave us, were willing to give us we had hoped. But they first gave themselves to the Lord. And then to us by the will of God. In other words, when they were presented with a financial challenge, they were very willing. But before they did anything... They made sure they reconsecrated themselves to God. And then they said, Apostles, we are at your disposal. So, God and His will. Secondly, our responsibility financially is to ourselves, believe it or not. It, say, say to your neighbor, yourself. According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, from verses 10 and 11, it says this For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. As disciples, God expects us to be financially responsible for our own welfare once we become adults. For our own welfare. Now, others may help us, and there's nothing wrong when we need help. We mustn't be proud to look for help, but we must never 
depend on others. Five more minutes and I'm done. Never depend on others for our financial welfare. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, our first responsibility is how do I, say I, how do I handle this and get out of this before God? Number three, our financial responsibility is to our family. Our family. By that I mean those who are under our authority. Whether it's our own children or family members who are under our immediate authority. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says this. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, our responsibility is to God, his will, to ourselves, to our family. Now, here it is. Sometimes in the church, we allow the spirit of welfare in the world to creep in. And by that, I mean this. I don't mean the spirit of welfare where we're looking to help others. I mean the spirit of welfare benefits. So, anything we want to do for the church, we want the church to pay us. Or anything, whenever we need something, we expect the church. And by the church, we mean other Christians in the body. Because who are the church? Is it the building? Is the church going to help me? What do you mean by that? You mean the building going to help you? It's people. Are you still here? You know, you should read my book, Freedom from a Poverty Mindset. It will help your life. It will help your life. Hallelujah. Part of being a true disciple, we embrace responsibility for ourselves and for others. But the others we embrace responsibility for must be people who cannot fend for themselves. Whether it's the vulnerably old or the vulnerably young. But I have no time for anybody who expects the church to help them when they are not willing to help themselves. And we are very generous as a church. We are, we are very generous. But I have no time. And I, have, I tell you, we are very generous as a church. But I have no time for anybody who, if we've helped them once, twice, and we don't help them third time, gets upset with us. He can be upset. Wait till the last day and find out. I, I have no time. I tell, I tell the leaders, don't worry. Let them. Don't, if they're upset, let them be upset. Because we've done what we can. Are you still here? Fourth responsibility is to the poor. To the poor. Saved and unsaved. And again, you know, in Western culture, what we call poor. I'll be going to Sierra Leone in, in, in April. There is poor, real poverty. I know there's poverty here, but seriously, at least we can go food banks and stuff. Poor, poor means you go to the, 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 um, the tip and you search for food. And when you find it, you are rejoicing. I'm not talking about you went behind Sainsbury's and took some of their food. That's poor, but I tell you, I have experienced a little bit of poor. Trust me, where I am looking for food on the floor. And when I find it, I'm so happy as I feast on the peanuts I found. Because <laughs> our parents went around and they didn't know what was happening. Poor is poor. 
But we as believers must look to help the poor. And one of the things, my personal view about helping the poor is this. It's not my place to question why they're poor. You see, there is this mindset that says, you know, if you give to them, some of them, they've got more money than you or whatever. Well, maybe they have. But as far as I'm concerned, if I see them and I believe they're poor and I feel the strings being pulled and I'm a mug, I'm happier. I'm happy because at least God knows I gave to the poor. He might be a con man, she might be a con woman, but God knows I gave to the poor. And when it comes to helping the poor, Mark 14, 7 says this. The poor you have with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. Did you see that? Whenever you wish, you may do them good. The poor is anybody who is needy of help where they cannot help themselves to even eat or even clothe themselves. And sometimes you're sitting next to someone and they are poor, but they don't look it, but they are poor. When they go home, all they've got is a tin of baked beans waiting and they're very happy. But they look like they're very rich because of how they look and how they sound. They're poor. Look at Ephesians 4.28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give to him who has need. I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to continue next week. But I want to stop with this last one. Uh, there are two more, but I want to stop with this one. Our responsibility also to the house of God, to the house of God. That is the church. When I say house of God, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about the local community, church community we are part of. And then the next area is our responsibility to our spiritual teacher. All these scriptures are there. Our spiritual teacher. The person who is teaching us the word of God. I have to be honest with you. When I get to this one, I like to be quick about it and move on to the next one. I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with this one. And then the next one is to Christian workers in general. As believers, we have a responsibility to Christian workers in general who are full-time in the work. And again, we'll look at that next week. 